You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like it, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It's March 18th, and I've got a great show for you this week. Before we start the show, let me uh, talk a little bit about some photo shoots I did recently. So, online, if you haven't been paying attention to social networking sites, or just generally the web, Underworld Amusements and Asp Apparel have been putting out, and I mean, let's just say Asp Apparel has been putting out some amazing designs uh, collaborating with a lot of really, you know, amazing Satanists. Uh, some with uh, Warlock Bloodfire, with the Quintessentials line. Um, our own Magus Gilmore. He has uh, the Special Interest Group Lightning Bolt uh, Pentagram series that he's um, putting out. But also Underworld Amusements. Now, Underworld Amusements did a couple of them. Uh, in response to his uh, recent, loosely say recent, lecture on Satanism, he put out the Christ Killer t-shirt, which is uh, tongue-in-cheek, amazing, uh, big Christ Killer uh, font, like gothic font going across the chest, and then you have a little spear in the side, blood, um, indicating, obviously, the the spear in the side of Jesus. Um, Funny shirt, uh, really great, can be taken in the wrong light in mixed company. (laughs) But he also put out a Book and Rifle Club t-shirt series. And so I jumped on this as soon as I heard about it because I thought it was an amazing... I mean, there's actually um, a Book and Gun Club already, but his sort of uh, humorous occult take on the Book and Rifle Club, I had to get in on this. So I ordered uh, one of the polo t-shirts, which is actually a really nice shirt. I mean, just solid, solid shirt. And the design is fantastic. And I put Salt Lake in the city. Uh, you can actually put a number of, uh, you know, whatever you want in there if you want. I, I was debating between Ninth Circle, as in the Ninth Circle of Hell, or Salt Lake, and I figured I'd go with Salt Lake because, well, I live here. Um, and I always run the risk with myself of, of being a little bit too... Uh, obscure when it comes to, uh, I mean, in, in that particular case, it's Dante's Inferno um, as far as a literary reference. And maybe it would have fit in better with the whole Book and Rifle Club uh, series. But just, I, I, I tend to take myself too seriously when it comes to Satanism and occult and the connection or the false connections that are perceived between Christian dogma and actual Satanism. And so, and, and even though Book and Rifle Club has nothing to do with Satanism, um, it's still, if I'm going to be involved in it, if I'm going to, you know, make some photos or anything of it, I feel like I maybe I should not <laughs> make it too connected. Uh, and, and so I, I had to be Salt Lake. So I decided to do this photo shoot for it, and I wanted it to be funny. We're as funny as I could make it anyway. I understand that even I have limits here of what I'm capable. So I decided I wanted to have the shirt, uh, this amazing uh, rifle, and 
a book, and I couldn't decide, and I was like really tossing around three different books here. I was in an old used book store, and I found this amazing book called Satan, uh, which is really a Catholicism take on Satan and how they perceive this uh, spiritual being. And it's sort of broken up into sections, where the first section is about how they perceive him and his fall from grace through God, and uh, really great mythologies type stuff. I mean, I love that that mythology. And and then the sort of the, the latter halves of the book, latter sections, are about the implications and touch that Satan has on our world, on our minds. Um, really interesting stuff. And so I decided eventually to go with that one. But I was really toying around with uh, The Hellbound Heart, which is my absolute favorite Clive Barker book. Uh, it became the Hellraiser movie. Or Where the Wild Things Are, which had an enormous, as I know many people, influence on our childhood. And certainly with me, with the idea of being a monster and being a beast myself and being in control of those monster-like and beastly reactions that are just dormant within all of us. So I was toying around with which one would be funnier. I decided to go with Satan because of the implication. Uh, amazing rifle. And then I decided to take my pants off. I thought it would be genuinely funny to have this serious book, this amazing rifle, uh, this just fantastic shirt, and the photo uh, as, as well as I can have taken without you know reaching out to a, a real photographer. And... Uh, <laughs> with no pants. <laughs> so the idea of that is that take yourself seriously, but not too seriously. Have fun with whatever you do. And with this book and rifle club, that's how it was created, is tongue-in-cheek. Uh, so I decided to run with it with a photo shoot. I posted those photos up uh, in social networking circles. So if you're connected in any way, you might see them. I hope you enjoy them if you do. And... I, <laughs> I, I ran the risk because when I received my nine cents clothing from Asp Apparel, I had uh, run a photo shoot where I actually had my pants off as well, but it was supposed to be like an accident in that series, and it's hard to tell a narrative with photos because at any point anyone can jump into any photo, you know, in the series that you put up online, so it's hard to tell a story. But that's really what I was trying to do with the nine cents version was tell this linear story of, of me showcasing these different photos, and then all of a sudden my junk is hanging out, and I have to hurry up and turn off the camera. So if you, if you ever see those online, there's a reason why my pants are off on that. A uh, very different reason why they're off. And maybe there's a theme with me just wanting to take my pants off, but okay. <laughs> I can live with that too. <laughs> Whatever. Um, I, I had a lot of fun. And then the Christ Killer t-shirt. I had to pick one of those up when I was picking up the Book and Rifle Club polo. Christ Killer was a good one. I wanted to do one of those really great inspirational posters. <laughs> I say really great because, you know, very, very uh, tongue-in-cheek there. Because I think they're completely worthless, but they're great because they're funny. Like, even when it's supposed to be serious or emotional or, or it's supposed to touch you on some level, I think it's genuinely funny. So I wanted to do something like that with transubstantiation, which is, you know, Christ Killer insinuating that, you know, I, I'm actually, like, the one that murdered Christ, you know, sort of personified by that spear wound underneath the the copy on that t-shirt. So I, I decided to have a raw steak on a plate with a glass of wine and play off the idea of communion, transubstantiation. So the idea that by eating this, 
wafer and drinking this sip of wine in communion, if you're a Catholic, you are eating the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. And so I thought if I had a t-shirt saying uh, uh, Christ killer and the title of this inspirational photo was, I'm sorry, inspirational poster was transubstantiation and the subtext uh, is for pussies, is that why worry about transubstantiation when you can just eat the bastard yourself? <laughs> or just kill him yourself and eat his flesh and drink his blood <laughs> like the insane carnal creatures we all are. I thought it was really funny. A couple other people liked it, which, you know, thank you for that. I don't feel like the photo did it 100% justice, though. I tried to, like, comb my hair all, you know, prim and proper like some good Christian boy would. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I have a problem with having an idea, but without other creative individuals to bounce those ideas off of, I can't really sell it 100%. So I did what I could with what I had, which I think still turned out entertaining, still turned out funny. Same with the Book and Rifle Club photos. Um, I, I feel like it could have gone a little bit further, but that was my weekend, just messing around with photos. I helped a buddy move in on uh, Saturday morning. Um, I'm completely sore and tired <laughs> today. We tried to go hiking, and there was snow all over the mountains, so much more than I had anticipated, so we couldn't even get on the trails we wanted to get on. So it was kind of weird. But through it all, um, the photo shoot, the moving, the failed attempt at going hiking, even though it's still winter, uh, maybe I set myself up on that one. We found this little hole-in-the-wall yogurt shop, which ended up having amazing frozen yogurt, and it was very tasty, and we had a good time with the family, and great weekend. So, <laughs> yay! <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to end that. Woohoo! Uh, I do have, let's transition here, <laughs> a great show for you this week. And The Devil's Advocate, I think I've touched on this before, I'm going to touch on it again, with Satanism, and this is in reference to an article from Letters from the Devil book, The Underworld Amusements, again, published of Anton LaVey's article, Letters from the Devil. Um, with Satanism, you receive as much as you give to it. Perhaps not the best title, but the subject matter is important. Infernal Informant, I got two articles here yet again. Sexually rejected flies turn to booze. That's right. We're more fly-like than you think. <laughs> and why bilinguals are smarter. In Creature Feature, I have an amazing interview with Corvus Nocturnum. We talk about uh, his past, his uh, obsession with painting, his uh, success in books, writing them and publishing them and creating his own company, his interviewing. I talk about a lot of stuff. I had to cut literally like half of it out, so that'll be another Nine Cents interview in the works. But I still have... I don't know, maybe 40 or 45 minutes of content from this interview. So look forward to that. And that's going to be it for the show. So yet again, another week, another nine cents. Sit back, hold tight. Devil's Advocate starts now. Why bother? How you done? Great. Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? Don't lie to me. I guess, Father. 
You gotta feel that old nick in your soul. And it becomes clear. Like it did for me. The first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Alright, here we are, people. Uh, with Satanism, you receive as much as you give to it. Like I said before, not the best title. And what... Anton LaVey in his article was specifically speaking to was I mean just that joining the church of Satan is not going to equate success in life Satanism isn't about uh, a self-help book I mean it, it actually does really have a lot to do with showing who you are allowing you to see who you are and get past the delusions that may have been forced down your throat. But it's not like a roadmap to success. That's all within you. That's something that you have to do. So just by joining Satanism, just by claiming to be the alien elite, does not equate <laughs> status, money, success, worth, value, anything. That, <laughs> you know, Satanism itself is about what you are inside, and so you can't expect something else. Uh, like buying a book or joining an organization to somehow make you better or different or successful. That's something that is obviously within yourself. Just because you joined this organization does not equate success in life. That's something that's within yourself, and it's something that you're going to have to do yourself. I distinctly remember videos, um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with, and, and maybe you shouldn't be, um, a bunch of pseudos, but I did see some videos on YouTube from some people involved with it that, you know, they were ripping up their membership card saying how, you know, all you got was a membership card. And um, it's, it's sort of this running theme with the show is that I ask everyone that's a known Satanist why they joined the organization. I talk about the organization with great favor, not to kiss up, but to point out that I find worth within the Church of Satan. I find value in identifying myself as a Satanist. Not because of what it has given me or what it has provided me, though I think with Satanism itself it has provided me with a great understanding of who I am. I mean, before before I identified myself as a Satanist, I just thought of myself as, uh, you know, this outsider. Now I know I have a title to apply to it that makes perfect sense to me, and I'm quite happy wearing that label. So, with that in mind, it's provided me with something, though not substantial. Everything else, you do yourself, which is the point in life. Satanism isn't about being handed success on a platter. You don't sign a scroll in blood making a deal with the devil, you sign a scroll with yourself telling yourself that you have something to provide in life, whether it's just to your family or to the masses as a whole, and you provide it. And that is of worth. That is what it means to exist. 
you find that meaning within yourself. If you're literally looking for someone else to provide you with something by joining their organization, you're not a Satanist. You're a sheep. Because that's what they do. And that's not what Satanism stands for. That's not what it means. It never has and it never will be. When we say we're the alien elite, it's not because we joined and we were provided a pamphlet. We joined to identify and support an organization that we genuinely see as valuable and meaningful in life. But our success is our own. We stand up. We do the work. We do what it takes We define the terms ourselves of what success means and work toward those goals. Some people use other organizations to help them along the way. That's fine. I am happy with where I am in Satanism. I am happy with where I am in life with my family. And if you join the organization and become disgruntled because you haven't gotten somewhere, you were never a Satanist to begin with. And that's the bottom line. And when I say it, there is an amount of derogatory tone that is associated with it because you're trying to pretend like you're someone like you're someone of worth a satanist by joining and then leaving because you didn't get what you expected proving that the whole time you were nothing so yeah there's some disgust in there and you should feel a little bit of shame if you're there anyway uh, that that was the article. I probably went a little bit further than he did. Well, I know I went a little bit further than he did in the article. But, th- you know, that's how I feel. Don't join an organization and expect something to happen. That's not what Satanism is. Stop pretending. Accept who you are and what you're capable of and work that angle. And everything else, if it's out of reach, it's beyond your capacity. Deal with it. You have to be able to recognize what you're capable of in life in order to succeed at anything. So don't fool yourself. That's just kind of how I see it. That's the way it is. Let's move on to the Infernal Informant. Listen up! Listen up! Hey, y'all, Good news! There's no devil! Bad news! No heaven! There's nothing to see! I'm your Fell informant. This first article, sexually rejected flies turn to booze. And this is uh, Science Now by Sarah C.P. Williams on 15 March 2012. I, I could not, with this title alone, I could not pass up this article. Offer a male fruit fly a choice between food soaked in alcohol and its non-alcoholic equivalent and his decision will depend on whether he's mated recently or been rejected by a female. This is awesome. Flies that have been given the cold shoulder are more likely to go for the booze, researchers have found. It's the first discovery in fruit flies of a social interaction that influences future behavior. I love this. Who thought flies had any clue about... uh, (laughs) Uh, the the brain-numbing effects of (laughs) of alcohol. Quote, this is an amazing link. End quote. To say the least, I'd say. Says neurogeneticist Troy Zars of the University of Missouri-Columbia, who was not involved in the study. 
Understanding the brain pathways responsible, he says, could help explain more broadly how rewarding behavior is reflected in the brain and how the brain mediates complex behaviors. Scientists already knew that when fruit flies drink alcohol, reward pathways in their brains are activated, making it a pleasurable experience. They also... This is the whole reason why I homebrew. (laughs) Because there's a pleasurable experience involved. (laughs) I'm a fly! Holy fuck! Jeff Goldblum had it the whole time (laughs) in his fly remake. Um, I don't have a Gina Davis, though. She's a little lanky for me. They also (laughs) knew that social interactions are among the most rewarding experiences. So researchers led by neuroscientist uh, Galit Shohat Ophir, I think I said that right, who conducted the work at University of California, San Francisco, but who has now moved to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute's Genelia Farm Research Campus in Ashburn, Virginia, wanted to see whether the two types of rewards were connected to the brain. Quote, This was just a wild experiment to do, she says. We didn't expect to see dramatic results, end quote. The scientists put 24 male fruit flies, Drosophila melangaster, in one of two situations. Half of the males were placed in vials in groups of four, each group with 20 female flies that were ready to mate. How do you determine if a female fly is ready to mate? Science at times eludes me. Allowing the males to mate with multiple females. Uh, yeah. (laughs) The other half of the males were put alone in vials, each with one female that had already mated, making her reject any courtship advances. After four days of repeated mating or rejection, the male flies were moved to new containers with capillaries containing food mash, some with alcohol and others without, that they could eat. Each fly could choose which capillary to drink from, and the researchers measured the amount that was consumed. The researchers expected all of the flies to prefer alcohol, but that's not what they found. You see, the the mated males actually have an aversion to the alcohol-containing food. So Hat Ophir says, and the rejected males have a high preference to that food with alcohol. On average, the rejected males drank four times more than the alcohol than the mated ones. Her team reports online today in Science. That's amazing to me. There's a couple things that make this amazing to me. One, that you can identify one fly over the other in order to conduct such an experiment. Two, that flies would have the craziest, wildest inkling in their brains of an effect of alcohol. And then, to repeatedly prefer that over non, or vice versa. And three, to be able to tell whether a woman fly is capable of being in heat or not. Distinguishable. And then... (laughs) <laughs> after having had sex, is done. <laughs> just, like, doesn't want anymore. She's just like, eh, I was disappointed once. <laughs> Why would I want to be disappointed twice? <laughs> I mean, if we have the drinking in common with flies, why not the disappointment in women? <laughs> does well. <laughs> Shohat Orphir and colleagues suspected that a chemical in the brain called, oh, I'm going to mess this up, Neuropeptide F, NPF, thank you very much, might play a role in the link. As has been 
previously discovered to mediate alcohol preference. So they measured the levels of NPF in the flies' brains after mating or rejecting. Uh, the rejected males they found had half the amount of NPF in their brains. If the researchers lowered the levels of NPF receptors in the brain, males that had mated acted like those that were rejected, drinking more ethanol-containing solution. And in the reverse experiment, if the team activated the NPF cells in the brain, rejected male flies no longer preferred alcohol-laden food. So I wonder if NPF is like the convincing of oneself that you've had sex. <laughs> I wonder if a compulsive liar has more NPF in their brain than a non-compulsive liar or a bad liar. <laughs> they show that NPF is necessary to mediate this link between sex and alcohol, and also the NPF is sufficient for the association, Zars said. That's two strong arguments that this is a real connection and not mediated in some other way. But there are still questions, Zars said, and how the connection works at a molecular level. How does the reward of a sexual experience control NPF levels? How do NPF levels control alcohol consumption? In addition, there's a protein... I'm sorry, there's a protein in mammals, including humans, that is similar to NPF called neuropedip... Pied Y, NPY. Study, I totally massacred that. I hope you'll forgive me. Studies have shown that people with depression and post-traumatic stress syndrome have lower levels of NPY. Moreover, low NPY levels have been linked to alcohol and drug consumption in rats, and certain gene variants of NPY found to be more common in human alcoholics. But whether NPY can mediate can be mediated by social experiences has yet to be studied. One result certainly doesn't translate directly from flies to humans, so Hadofir says, but it does bring up questions and suggests future studies. This is amazing. This is why I love science. There is no way a priest would ever consider this, would ever even think of this, but we have people who literally have no reward of life except to look into the absurd and, to some, insane ideas and find correlation, find connection, no matter how minute. Science is a fucking miracle to humankind. I gotta tell you, man, this is awesome. Uh, I'm gonna go find myself a little fly girl and I won't have to drink tonight. <laughs> Let's move to the... That is so fucking crazy! Oh, man. So alcoholics... And and this would be an interesting study. Um, control group, only alcoholics, who have sex and who don't, whether they uh, continue to binge as much as they had previously after sex. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so the next article here, New York Times Sunday Review opinion pages, why bilinguals are smarter. Yeah, under the gray matter heading. How creative. By, uh, I'm going to totally botch this as well, Udigit Bhattacharya. Holy crap, can no one be named Jack Smith or something? Published March 17th, 2012. Speaking two languages rather than just one has obvious practical benefits in an increasingly globalized world. Increasingly, not greasing. Uh, but in recent years, scientists have begun to show that the advantages of bilingualism are even more fundamental than being able to converse with a wider range of people. Being bilingual, it turns out, makes you smarter. 
It can have a profound effect on your brain, improving cognitive skills not related to language, and even shielding against dementia in old age. This view of bilingualism is remarkably different from the understanding of bilingualism through much of the 20th century. Researchers, educators, and policymakers long considered a second language to be an interference, cognitively speaking, that hindered a child's academic and intellectual development. They were not wrong about the interference. There is ample evidence that in a bilingual's brain, both languages' systems are active, even when he's only using one. Thus creating situations in which one system obstructs the other. But this interference, researchers are finding out, isn't so much a handicap as a blessing in disguise. It forces the brain to resolve internal conflict, giving the mind a workout that strengthens its cognitive muscles. Bilinguals, for instance, seem to be more adept than monolinguals at solving certain kinds of mental puzzles. In a 2004 study by the psychologist Ellen Biles... Bialystok, Bialystok, and Michelle Martin Ray, bilingual and monolingual preschoolers, were asked to sort blue circles and red squares presented on a computer screen in two digital bins, one marked with a blue square and the other marked with a, guess it, that's right, red circle. In the first task, the children had to sort the shapes by color, placing the blue circles in the bin marked with a blue square and the red circles in the bin marked with a red circle. Both groups did this with comparable ease. Next, the children were asked to sort by shape, which is more challenging because it required placing the images in a bin marked with a conflicting color. The bilinguals were quicker at performing the task. The collective evidence from a number of such studies suggests that the bilingual experience improves the brain's so-called executive function, a command system that directs the attention process that we use for planning, solving problems, and performing various other mental demanding tasks. These processes include ignoring distractions to stay focused, switching attention willfully from one thing to another, and holding information in mind, like remembering a sequence of directions while driving. Why does the tussle between two simultaneously active language systems improve these aspects of cognition? Until researchers, until recently, sorry, researchers thought the bilingual advantage stemmed primarily from an ability of inhibition that was honed by the exercise of suppressing one's language system. This suppression, it was thought, would help train the bilingual mind to ignore distractions in other contexts. But that explanation increasingly appears to be inadequate, since studies have shown that bilinguals perform better than monolinguals, even in tasks that do not require inhibition, like threading a line through an ascending series of numbers scattering randomly on a page. The key difference between bilinguals and monolinguals may be more basic. A highlighted ability to monitor the environment. Bilinguals have to switch language quite often. You uh, may talk to your father in one language and your mother in another language, says Albert Costa, a research at the University of Pompeii Fabra in Spain. It requires keeping track of changes around you in the same way that we monitor our surroundings while driving. In a study comparing German-Italian bilinguals with Italian monolinguals in monitoring tasks, Mr. Costa and his colleagues found that the bilingual subjects not only performed better, but they also did so with less activity in parts of the brain involved in monitoring, indicating that they were more efficient at it. The bilingual experience appears to influence the brain from infancy to old age, and there is reason to believe that it may also apply to those who learn a second language later in life. 
In a 2009 study led by Agnes Kovacs of the International School of Advanced Studies in Trieste, I hope I said that, Italy, seven-month-old babies exposed to two languages from birth were compared with peers raised with one language. In an initial set of trials, the infants were presented with an audio cue and then shown a puppet on one side of the screen. Both infant groups learned to look at the side of the screen in anticipation of the puppet, but in later set of trials, when the puppet began appearing in the opposite side of the screen, the babies exposed to a bilingual environment quickly learned to switch their anticipatory gaze in the new direction, where the other babies did not. Bilingualism effects also extend into the twilight years. In a recent study of 44 elderly Spanish-English bilinguals, scientists led by neuropsychologist Tamar Gollan of University of California, San Diego, found that individuals with a higher degree of bilingualism measured through a comparative evaluation of proficiency in each language were more resistant than others in the onset of dementia and other symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. The higher the degree of bilingualism, the later the age of onset. Nobody ever doubted the power of language, but who would have imagined that the words we hear and the sentences we speak might be leaving such a deep imprint? That's the end of an article, and I'm amazed by this. I heard a joke uh, once a while ago. Um, what do you call someone who speaks three languages? Uh, trilingual. What do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? American. <laughs> it's that idea... Um, and it's sort of this reoccurring theme in American culture. And it, at, at its base, at its core, American culture is defined by immigrants and their influx into a brand new environment, America, provided with the opportunities they never had in their native countries. So you have this melting pot of language, of culture, experience, and ideas uh, mixed and fueled by the opportunity of enterprise, of capitalism, uh, that anyone can succeed with the, nutsh- with, uh, the proper drive and motivation. Uh, really, your only limit in life is set by yourself. I mean, think about that. That's huge. And what American life has turned into, because of those promises and because of those successful is the dumbing down of intellect and opportunity in order to further the goals of those who had that opportunity and intellect. We are the result of a society that encourages ignorance and slave-like behavior. And it's depressing, and it's not just here, but I speak to America because obviously I'm here. Um, I have experience with it. And it's something that I'm seeing in my children being instructed through the education system that we've set up. It's a dangerous system. And if simply by encouraging a second or third language in my children is going to give them an edge up because of what that means with their brain and and the stimulus within, well, then hells yes, I am. I mean, why wouldn't you? And if you're one of those, like myself, uh, uh, monolinguals, 
happy with the success in your life, uh, happy with where you have gone and, and, and the achievements you've made. And if just by learning proficiently and understanding thoroughly another language and how that could possibly push you to uh, maybe even a further cognitive level, why wouldn't you want that? I mean, I've never really looked at it this way before, and that's why I really brought this article to the the show here, but it's really got me thinking. I may have to uh, look at those uh, German and Gaelic classes again that I had uh, shrugged off a while ago. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for the Northern Infernal Informant. Uh, let's take a quick break. Hear from a couple other uh, Radio Free Satan shows. And on the other side, Corvus Nocturnum with uh, Creature Feature. See you there. Prepare for incoming message. Prepare yourself for Deep Six Radio. I am Matt, host of Deep Six Radio. And I am in Russ. Yes, we are. So if you want to be one of the six taking on the oh-so-lovely Idris and want to be featured on the show... Send your emails... And MP3s... To us at... Deep Six... At RadioFreeSatan.com Include a bio... And anything you want mentioning on air. We are open to any genre... Apart from rap... Deep Six also includes a fine selection of alternative rock... As well as multiple other genres... So why not jump on the roller coaster? That is Deep Six Radio... Deep Six is available on... RadioFreeSatan.com And also iTunes... A week later, we, we look, look forward, forward to, to you joining us. us. End of the line. Are you looking for music from the 80s and the new wave post-punk and other hits? Jay Nothing, the host of the Metro, will take you back to the 80s with songs that made the decade of me so memorable. Get the weekly updates at RadioFreeSatan.com. And remember, Hail Satan. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were... Hey, what if We Are the World was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. Oh, God. No. Just me. Did you know that after the heart stops beating, 
The brain can function for well over seven minutes. We got six more minutes to play. Why are you screaming when I haven't even cut you yet? Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today I'm being joined by Warlock Corvus Nocturnum. Uh, recently appointed agent as well, uh, author, uh, occult, gothic lifestyle, and all subject matters dark uh, aficionado. How are you tonight? I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's truly a pleasure. I, I I don't know why I haven't had you on yet, to be quite honest, because you're really you're, you're one of those gentlemen who is continuously out there, meaning you are constantly working on a project, you're getting a ton of attention for, uh, and I'm not entirely sure why I haven't uh, snagged you on here yet, but I'm <laughs> glad I've got you now. Uh, and we do have a lot to talk about. Uh, as with all my interviews, before we get into sort of the nit and gritty, maybe I could uh, get you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, your uh, your intro of me was spot on. Uh, I'm an author, artist, publisher, uh, occult researcher, and aficionado of all things gothic and horror. Nice, nice. Is this something that you were always? I mean, did you just have a penchant for it growing up? Um, um, were your parents yeah, helping at all influence yeah. you? My parents, no. They, I guess you could say that various members of my family were prime examples of what to be as inspiration and prime examples also of the, shall we say, bottom feeders of the world of what oh. not to be. Yeah. So, you know, it was actually a good thing in my life to have both because my grandparents were lawyers and uh, heavy into politics and, you know, power and everything, being Masons. Um, you know, my my grandmother and her family were artists and you know musicians that played vaudeville during the gangster era, and you know Very so that cool. you know that influenced me a great deal. You know, the fact that my mother and father were hippies uh, in and out of prison was you know the prime fuel of okay, don't be that, be like you know the other. <laughs> so. It was it was very powerful, I think, for me to see the two differences early on, and it, it was almost a natural progression for me to become how I am. Um, as far as my interest in secret societies and things like that, that came later with my grandfather and you know the Masonic thing. But mm-hmm. you know they were, I guess you could say Christian. You know I was supposed to be growing up Protestant, but. Uh, you know, my grandmother was an influence there, too. She said, I don't need a preacher telling me how to read the damn book. I can do it myself. I can think for myself. And I thought, hmm, question everything. Good yeah. point, Grandma. You know, so it kind of, it went from there. That's great. Let me, let me ask you something, because I was early on in my military career approached by Masons um, to uh, as an invitation to, uh, to join their order. Um, and admittedly, when I was stationed in Germany at the time, the construction, the organization that is Masons over there is much different, I've been told, than it is stateside. But isn't it like a, a predominantly Judeo-Christian backed organization? Uh, I kind of hesitate to give it that blanket statement, but anymore I think it kind of comes across that way. 
I, I do know that it's early foundations, and even going back 30, 40 years ago, it was a lot more loose as far as um, at least the higher up you go, anyway. Yeah. Uh, it became more occultist, and um, the, the great power they refer to could be any religion that you choose to bring in, or absolutely none. I mean, uh, that was one of the great things that I loved when I wrote Promethean Flame, talking about secret societies is you know you could pretty much bring your own flavor into it and that's why it was sort of a secret obscure occult thing but now like you said it's kind of become more uh, lip service to Christianity and they're not even accepted by mainstream Christianity because of the stigma of the cultism that they have turned their backs on pretty much oh wow wow um, I would imagine that would have and, and as you had stated, had a, a pretty strong influence on you growing up, was, I guess, what point did you start looking into Satanism versus, um, or, or maybe it was a progression, but at what point did you look into Satanism uh, versus any other occult group? Um, actually, that kind of started out uh, later in life. Um, I was getting involved with a lot of people who were different than the mainstream religion. Uh, my ex at the time had started a group called the Fort Wayne Pagan Alliance, and it grew to 200 members strong of the local city and surrounding small little hick towns. And, uh, you know, it, it grew with a lot of different, very diverse uh, types of people and, you know, little orders, you know, cliques and stuff came about. And one gentleman came up to me and he said, uh, you're wearing all dark clothes, you know, and uh, you kind of go at the left-hand path and you're interested in Crowley and some other, you know, darker sort of things. So I was just kind of dabbling and learning about, uh, you know, more advanced stuff at the time, and I didn't know anything about the Church of Satan until then. And uh, he hands me the Satanic Bible and he says, here's the deal. You like it, you read it, and, you know, you want to do something with your life according to this, then you pass on a copy of it to someone else who's deserving and uh, kind of give them a start like I'm doing for you. And I thought, okay. And, you know, it just kind of went from there that uh, around 2004, 2005, I finally made the, you know, intelligent, wise choice of saying, hey, this is who I am. It's who I've always been, a free thinker who's creative and, you know, objecting to the to the mass, you know, herd mentality. This is the only thing that fits. And why go to anybody else? Why go to you know, an offshoot uh, variation thereof of the original. Stick with what works. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, let me ask you that, because uh, that's interesting. I've never heard of anyone... I mean, maybe it was the way you presented it. It sounded all uh, mysterious and stuff. It, the gentleman who introduced you to Satanism, are you still in contact with him? Uh, on occasion. He, he pretty much uh, is still... Uh, satanic in his mindset and his creative muse and all, but he mm. isn't prescribing to any one particular path other than just whatever he chooses to do. Nice. Which, uh, it kind of sounds oxymoronic of, you know, why wouldn't he join? But, uh, you know, everybody has their own little quibbles and reasons for not. Indeed. At what point did you join the Church of Satan, and what was the motivation factor for you? Um, I think it was late 2004 into 2005, somewhere in there. I think it was a, a matter of me at the time realizing that, of course, the website says you don't have to be a member to be a Satanist, but at the same time, I thought, why not, for several reasons. Um, 
support the people who are working so hard to keep the movement going. Yeah. You know, my hundred bucks at the time because it was just changing to two hundred, and um, I thought, why not support the people that are carrying the black flame forward? You know, I, I want to keep the momentum going for them too, and I figured my money would help. And you know, as a selfish egoist, you know, obviously I felt that if I did something noteworthy. Um, and I had published my first book at that time that uh, perhaps, you know, they would recognize what I was, you know, willing and able to do, that they might help advertise my efforts. And it has certainly met with a very wide success in both those categories. That's great. Uh, I often find, um, and this may just actually be me, but I, I find people who are and I guess for lack of a better term, I'm going to say satanic friendly, though they don't identify themselves as Satanists, uh, but generally never in sort of the subcultures that uh, you're actually, you speak to in a lot of your, your works. Um, and I mean, you seem to be one of those rare individuals who's able to sort of walk the lines between <laughs> subcultures. You know what I mean? I, I hope I'm not reaching here, but that's yes, what it seems like. Yes, actually, you're you're right on the money. Intuition or just you know uh, putting the pieces together. But I've often joked to some of my other close friends who are elders in these other communities, and they're different but similar threads. And I said, yeah, I like sometimes walk the razor's edge between. Satanism, goth, the vampire community, and that sort of thing. And it's like, I've never gone around saying, I'm a vampire. I'm, you know, a living whatever. Mm. I say I, I like the lifestyle, the trappings, the gothic occult, you know, spookiness, because it's very fitting for the Adams family trappings that Satanism uses as well. Mm. I see that there's a connection and a shared aesthetic. And I've got a lot of friends on both sides of the fence. It's like, you know, everybody's money spends equally as well. And if I was writing just for the exclusive Satanism crowd, there's not many of us out there. You know, yeah. there's a reason why we're the alien elite out of the rest of the world. I can't possibly make a decent living off of just, you know, speaking to the people that already know and understand the same things I do. And quite frankly, if they already have that mindset, why are they going to buy anything I write? You know, we're already like-minded, so, you know, I, I kind of have to appeal to both sides of the fence. You know, it, it's a matter of pragmatism, uh, financial, you know, thinking, and, uh, you know, they're not bad people, they just aren't us. Right. But at the same time, you know, different perspective or challenging conversation, stimulating my own mind, you know, whatever. Who came first, uh, the author or the artist? <laughs> Actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, my first book came out years later. Someone walks up to me and has me sign it, and they look at it, and they're like, well, you painted the cover, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I've, I've been an artist for you know, 20, 30 years. It's just now that I'm an author and people are starting to spread my work around to 12 different countries, they're starting to notice he does art too. You know? <laughs> you know, It's kind of funny, but at the same time, it's you know, part of me feels a little insulted that I've been pushing you know, oil paintings, and now I'm selling them through... Facebook fans and stuff, you know, I made a couple grand last year off of a couple art sales, and I just wanted to have room in the studio to put out new stuff and <laughs> put my efforts into new pieces, and, you know, it, it's it's all about keeping things in motion. Move mm -hmm. forward. If you're bored writing, start picking up a paintbrush. Go back and forth. You know, don't be stagnant. I'm actually um, looking at your website, uh, CorvusNocturnum.com, uh, looking at some of the 
art gallery you have here? So, I mean, your style is... It, it varies. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's you, you really. It doesn't look like you just stick to one form, which is actually pretty nice. I mean, do you think it's common for uh, artists to sort of get stuck in a style and, and kind of become slaves to it at some point? I do think so. I mean, some people absolutely love it, and that's who they are, and that's all that they resonate with. I mean, uh, a very good friend of mine uh, over at Monolith Graphics is Joseph Vargo, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, I, I sat down with him one day, and you know, we we're talking about you know me doing an art book of my work, and he's like, "Well, I'll write an intro for you." And I was like, "Wow, you know, here's a guy that I grew up going into Hot Topic, uh, looking at his calendars and T-shirts and things, and you know, impressed by the guy." And now we're sitting around as buddies, and he's like, "I'll do your intro," and I was like, "Wow, <laughs> thank you." You know, it, it's a great praise, and he said, "No, I think you're really good," and uh, he said, "You really capture you know who you are." as an overall in your pieces, you know, the creativity and, you know, you're kind of thumbing your nose at people who don't like nudity and you're not afraid to put certain elements and ideas into your work, whereas he's kind of fallen into the pattern of what he is is all that people know of him as. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of think it's good because it defines him, but at the same time, for someone like me, I want it to be where the definition of who I am is an overall, not just a subset. Yeah. So it's kind of difficult. I mean, I do want to be known as a gothic erotic, you know, artist, uh, you know, kind of like Joseph Fargo meets uh, Louis Royo, who did a lot of really fantastic pieces for Heavy Metal Magazine over the years. I mean, those two guys are my biggest influences. Hmm. Heck yeah. I, I wonder, do you ever, I mean, because you sort of alluded to this just a minute ago, but do you ever worry that, you know, you can be a, that it would necessarily even be a bad thing, I guess, if you were an expert at multiple mediums but not a master at any. Well, I think it's stupid for someone to think I can't. You know, I can master everything. I'm great. I'm you know an egotistical Satanist who you know feels that I should be the best at everything I try to do. Well, mm-hmm. that's kind of short-sighted because if you know you already are really good at something, I'm not saying don't break out of your mold and your little box of, of uh, you know, this is all I can do, never try anything else, because if you have talent, chances are you can turn it into something else, too, and probably do okay, but, you know, there's also a matter of if you're already a master of something, don't go way out of left field and try to do something else that you're clearly not suited for, and just assume that you're going to be great at everything you do. Yeah, it's rough, because I guess, excuse me, uh, on, on a lot of fronts, uh, you know, media lends itself to other mediums. Um, so if you're a good illustration, you know, you're branching out to painting, uh, you know, they'll sort of nurture each other a little bit. And you, you actually, in doing that, might, you know, fall into some new styles that you hadn't anticipated before, learn some new techniques. And so, you know, in that aspect, when it's, it's sort of small leaps, incremental leaps, it can actually help you. Uh, I think it would be a little bit rougher if, if you, you know, you take those larger leaps and just expect to land on your feet every time. Right. I mean, I love airbrush, and I've incorporated it once in a while in some of my backgrounds for, like, fog and mist and things like that. But I'm mm. I'm not going to sit there and say I'll airbrush, you know, someone's car because it'll look as good as one of my oil paintings. That's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> okay, so what about writing? When, when was your first book published you say uh, around uh, 04 was it 
Um, I was writing it in 2004. Uh, actually, I was working at Ingram Book Company. Uh, they're the giant warehousers, you know, yeah. distribution centers of just about every title you can name. And I did it because I wanted to, you know, a decent job, decent paycheck, and didn't want to be around a lot of people. So I was working the line where you just package, you know, boxes of books and send them out. And I'm surrounded by like five football field size building full of books. I'm an artist. I like to write and, you know, express myself. And here are these people, you know, like Harry Potter had just come out. And I'm seeing three semis parked outside full of pallets of books. And I'm thinking, there's money in publishing. Yeah. There's money in being a writer. You know, it, it may not be huge. And I believe it was uh, Emily Dickinson, if I'm not mistaken, once said, writing is the fastest way to very slow money. And when you first start out, she was right. But yeah, Embracing the Darkness, Understanding Dark Subcultures came out in May of 2005. And it was me basically exploring the history, the similarities, and the differences in all dark lifestyles. Because I was fed up with people coming into the little occult shop that me and my ex had ran, saying, well, all Satanists are, you know, devil worshippers, and all witches are Satanists, and all <laughs> all goss are, etc. Yeah. And I'm thinking, no, they're not. You don't even understand the people that you're condemning. And some of the people would come to me and say, well, then you explain it. And I'm thinking, well, hearing you guys and hearing and seeing all these hot topic goths come in, you guys don't even know the history of your own subculture. You don't know the history of witchcraft. You don't know where goth came from back in, you know, the 18th century for Victorian period, you know, mourning and stuff like that. You guys need to be educated just as well as your parents need to be educated. I mean, I, I was stopped recently by a Fort Wayne police officer who bought my first book. And he stops me on the side of the road, you know, he's still in uniform and everything, and I think I'm in trouble for something that I don't, can't imagine what it is. And he's like, no, no, you're Corvus, right? And I'm like, a cop knows me by my pen name? And uh, he's like, I, I want you to, you know, come, come talk to the people at the academy and, you know, give them an education of what subcultures and occult symbols and, you know, all this sort of thing is. Not that we have a lot of, you know, occult crimes here in Fort Wayne, but, yeah. you know, uh, they think it would be helpful for the city to not be so narrow-minded, and, you know, so. That's a good thing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to be pulled over, like he was driving <laughs> by and he just happened to see, he was like, oh, wait, wait. It's <laughs> yeah, kind of funny. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I've always liked being a public speaker simply because it, it feels good to actually be an educator and, the notoriety, of course, does help sell books because if you're a go-to guy as a speaker or an educator, chances are the public's going to say, oh, maybe I should buy what he wrote because he knows what he's talking about. Other people are you know, seeing him as an expert. Let me ask you a little bit about the, the various books that you have uh, released. Do you have, and then I know I ask a lot of this, and it's sort of like which is your favorite child, but do you have a favorite book that you've released, you know, something that you just put more time into or you just have a better connection with? Um, if we're speaking of all my works and not just the ones that I, you know, do through Dark Moon Press, yeah. um, I would have to say that three books stand out the most, and uh, Embracing the Darkness, of course, because it's the first thing. Without it, there would be no others. Um, so despite the flaws that you know still are in it, because I didn't have an editor when I first did that one, um, 
uh, Allure the Vampire because that was just fun to do and it was very popular. It sold well. Uh, but I, Lucifer, Exploring the Archetype and Origins of the Devil is my second book through Schiffer Publishing that came out a couple months ago. And I kind of have a very strong you know, affection for that one simply because that's me really explaining to everybody the things that all Satanists really know. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a chapter on the Church of Satan in it for one thing. But talking about uh, the history and archetype and symbolism and psychology and history, you know, it's all the different things that I spent years researching. You know, someone left me a bad review out of all the different people and said their big flaw with it, it was was poorly cited. And I'm thinking to myself, apparently you didn't read it very well because I'm mentioning everybody where I quote different books, say what movie it was. And then if you look at the bibliography on the last few pages – it's two pages of very fine print that are single-spaced in two columns, both pages of all my reference material. Jeez. Now, how can you say I didn't cite my work? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way to go through and, and sort of like block out or, or at least respond to poor reviews? Uh, I'm sure that I could respond to it, but I don't want to appear childish. I'd rather yeah. the work itself speak for itself. Yeah. And if you look on Amazon with Corvus Nocturnum, you're going to find my overall average is 4.5 out of 5 stars. So I'm not really worried about one or two people that want to be a pain in the butt. Yeah. It's just, it seems like if if you have so many good reviews and then just one really bad review, you know, maybe you could just shave off the, you know what I mean? But people are, are entitled to their own wrong opinion. Yeah, true. Very true. No matter how... <laughs> How infuriating it can be at times. Um, okay, so the next question was actually just this research. So this is this is fantastic. When when you tackle a project, uh, say you want to write a new book tomorrow, you want to start, uh, you know, however long it's going to take you, do you base it off? Like, do you have a projected schedule of what you want to do, and you base what to do based on the amount of time that it's going to take, or or do you just sort of tackle one at a time, and however long it takes is however long it takes, and then you'll be done? Uh, I wish I could say that, and when I just ran Dark Moon Press solely, I could. I mean, the luxury of being a business owner, of I can do whatever I want, you yeah. know. Uh, now that I'm publishing, you know, ten other people as well as me, you know, I kind of can be the, the guy in charge and then write whatever I want whenever I want because they're keeping me busy. Um, but when it comes to writing for people like, uh, you know, magazine articles for Dark Resurrected or especially being under contract with Schiffer Publishing, when they give you a deadline, it's got to be done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I wish I could say I have as long as I need, but <laughs> they, they they give me, you know, probably nine months to do each one, and I crank it out in four to six because, you know, I don't do much else other than go to college and, you know, write. But, uh, well, that's great. I, I don't know. You know, it, that's a tough one. You know, I wish I had more creative control, but I think I have the luxury of being a publisher and a writer, so... I kind of can see it from both ends. So with with Schiffer, I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to pry into particulars or anything, but when when you go under contract as an author, is there like a genre that they contract you under, or are you pretty much just you just um, have to provide a book? It's kind of like this. I approach them kind of on a whim, not even expecting to get an answer because another interviewer. Uh, Tim Shaw, who does the Black Cat Lounge podcast, 
he had me on his show a few times, and he's like, you should, you know, I know you publish your own stuff, and you have your own company, but have you ever thought about going to anybody else? Uh, is it, you know, would it demean you to, you know, be written through someone else? And I'm like, no, the extra exposure would be very cool, and I, I like the, uh, I guess it's the matter of knowing that someone else big wants to put you out as well as, you know, you can do it yourself. Anybody can publish something if they yeah. learn, yeah. but to be recognized by uh, another company to be asked to, you know, is something else. That's, you know, very empowering. Um, but getting back to your question, you know, trying to get something to them, they had a ghost category. They do most of the state books like Haunted Indiana, Haunted Wherever. Oh, yeah. They do a lot of UFO and, you know, Bigfoot type books, but they're mostly known for photography, history, and, you know, culture, and just tons of war type books, you know, real library sort of, you know, uh, coffee table type things. Yeah, yeah. Um, But at the same time, uh, Dinah Roseberry, who's my editor, kind of said she took a real big risk on me because the type of things she already knew that I put out that when I pitched them with Cemetery Gates, uh, it's about death and dying and how, you know, people process it and, you know, culture and, you know, everything. She said that they took it because it was interesting and it still fit with their history type books of uh, Victorian period and, you know, death and all that. But when I threw them, I Lucifer. I thought that one would be rejected flat out and Dark Press <laughs> would have to put it out because here I am basically being the flagship for religion is crap and you know satanists are right because it's an archetype and jung agrees with us you know (laughs) but they took it and they loved it and the cover's beautiful i've gotten great reviews you know and i was kind of impressed with that so when they asked me what's next i was like okay i can pretty much do anything i want with either company because they all like me yeah you know so unfortunately with Schiffer, i can't disclose you know, uh, what's going to come next with them because each book is under a very uh, closed lid. They don't want the exposure because it might jeopardize marketing or whatever. But I will say that uh, something along the lines of uh, the Travel Channel or Discovery Channel is very interested in a year or two with making uh, a book that we're working on right now become a TV show. Very cool. Yeah, so I'm I've already talked to the people that do oddities, uh, the talent agent for Discovery and the oddities, uh, uh, Obscura Authentica, I think the name of the store is. You know, got a hold of me and I was talking to them about a concept, but uh, I can't really give it away more than that. But there's a few clues, you know, red herrings dropped in there. Nice. All right. All right. I'll be keeping my uh, eyes peeled back. <laughs> that's, that's pretty exciting. We've got about a year and a half before anything really starts happening because that's how long traditional publishing takes to get something out. And Discovery yeah. wants to see the finished book before they do anything. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, got to play their way. <laughs> yeah, patience really is a virtue in some cases. <laughs> I can do whatever I want in the meantime with my own company and put it out in six months if I feel like it. I don't have to wait. That's great. So. Because you have that freedom of uh, sort of publishing, you know, through your own company, do you ever find? Okay, let me let me sort of set this up here. I'm a graphic designer, and so I uh, I create uh, designs, websites, ads, billboards, and stuff for other people. 
okay. specifically to their spe- specifications. And I often, because the client sucks, end up with work <laughs> that I'm very ashamed of. And if I was able, I would go back and take back that work, <laughs> like at the end of the creative cycle, you know, whenever they decide to do something new. Uh, and just sort of tear it up, uh, you know, hide it under a rock uh, if I could. <laughs> Do you ever run into that with writing or art? Uh, with art, not as much because it's a little more permanent because I work with oils. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to fix something like that. Um, with art especially, I think that if people see my beginning work and, and they see what I'm doing now, they're going to appreciate the growth and improvement as an artist. As a publisher, it's a little different because I have a product that I'm trying to continually sell that I want to be as perfect as possible. So there have been covers like uh, A Mirror Darkly that I just, I realized that I had evolved, so I scrapped the cover and changed it to something more bold and plain. And the interior, I changed the font type a little smaller because I didn't want it to look so amateurish, you know, being made for kids because it's certainly not it's the least pc book i've ever put out it's me you know ranting and raving (laughs) um it's basically my version of uh the devil's notebook you know um but uh you know certain covers have been changed certain text has been changed um my first book i had someone go back in and edit it and then i re-uploaded it after you know three years because i had sold out the first couple print runs and had no more books so I figured that was a prime time to uh, fix some things because the only major flaw people were having with uh, embracing is the grammar and uh, punctuation here and there was off because if you look at other uh, mainstream publishers, big ones, you know, Penguin and places like that, mm-hmm. you'll still find mistakes in books like uh, Laurel K. Hamilton, Stephen King, people like that. They still don't catch everything. Yeah, we're human. Yeah. So – for me, it's a little tricky as an artist and a creative type. I want people to know that there's pro- progress being made with even my own company. But at the same time, I don't want there to be flaws too because the buyer who comes along two years from now isn't going to care that one of the books at that point came out 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. They're only going to care that, oh, I brought I bought one that's crap compared to 30 other books or 50 other books that they put out that's great. Yeah. So it's it is kind of hard now. I mean, by fall of next year, we'll be at fifty titles. So, oh, it, it yeah, it's exciting. It's growth. I mean, Azure Green Abyss Distribution, that sells to every occult shop in the world, is now carrying Dark Moon Press titles. So, oh, yeah. you know, it, you know, you hit them, you got gold. You know, I couldn't do any better unless my old job, uh, Ingram, taps me on the shoulder and says, "We want a bulk." you know, pallet of all your stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's the next uh, big payday for me. If I can arrange them in a couple of years, that'd be great. How do you handle, um, authors that come to you about uh, dark moon? I do you accept, uh, submissions. I have, I've accepted books that I never even thought were in the genre realm of the company because I have to say feral house was a very big influence on me in the beginning when I decided to take it from one book into multiples. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted it to be dark. I wanted it to be edgy. Uh, their work with, uh, Lords of Chaos was an influence and, you know, Plexus putting out Reverend Gavin Badley's, you know, books. He was a big influence on me and, you know, um, with goth chic and dissecting Marilyn Manson and things like that. But I also thought, why shouldn't I be the dark version of Llewellyn? 
you know, they were the big powerhouse in occult books and still are. You go into any Borders or Barnes and Noble, you know, type store, and they've got fifty percent or more of every symbol that's on the spine of the books. And I thought, I want the Dark Moon Press snake on bookshelves all across the United States. And in order to do that, I knew I had to widen the appeal. So I started putting out fiction. I started putting out more uh, secret societies, which led into neo-paganism books. And even though that's not my thing, I know that there's a buying market for it. And I certainly wouldn't be carried by Azure Green if I didn't have something for the lighter crowd to yeah, Do, was that difficult for you ever? <clears throat> Business-wise, it makes sense to carry uh, a broad array of, of ideas and stuff uh, that you don't necessarily agree with. Personally, um, did you ever have issue with that? Yeah, I mean, people were asking for Aleister Crowley and uh, Eliphas Levy, and I understand that they had a very powerful, huge influence on occultism for their day and probably yeah. still carry over now. But their ph- philosophical stance is totally you know, the opposite of mine. Yeah. But I know it sells. So you're kind of looking at, do I just stay hardline, just left-hand path, you know, Lords of Chaos type you know, stuff and stay a very small niche? Or do I expand and say, well, this is the types of books that we put out for the darker crowd – and try to make a living to keep the business running. Yeah, sort of what we were speaking to earlier. Yeah, so that's kind of the tough choice that I made. And, you know, I can put it out there that I, I'm a fan of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe, but, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm going to read and buy everything. I mean, I, I put it out there because if I'm only selling to myself, it's going to be very narrow, like I said, but... At the same time, I know the fans. You know, when, when I set up at uh, Convocation in Detroit a few weeks back, we did a, amazing in three days, and it was a very, very pagan crowd. You know, white lighter, you know, however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But they were swarming all over our table, and I was shocked because, you know, fifty percent of it's vampires, the rest is dark occultism. You know, some horror stuff. And they're eating it up, and I'm making money. You know, and they're you know between lecturing and classes and that. I kind of looked at the people I came with, and I'm like, you know, what's going on? And they're like, well, look around you. There's all the same in all the other booths, all the other tables, the thing, same things that they're seeing year after year. This is different. This is something that they're missing. And that's why some of the writers are coming to Dark Moon Press as opposed to Luella now, because they're tired of cranking out 101 books. Mm-hmm. They're tired of just being PC. They want to express who they are. And that's what I welcome. Okay, since we've mentioned it a couple times already, how did you first start into your lecturing? Um, that actually started uh, back in around 2006. Um, the local college students who were running a, a pagan-type uh, group tried to get together every major religion of the city. And Fort Wayne is also known as the City of Churches. It's the second largest city in Indiana. They came to me because of my first book and they're like we want you to speak on satanism since you're you know you're a member now and we have a buddhist here we've got a, a couple of jewish rabbis and a, you know a bunch of other you know judeo-christian you know priests and everything standing up there and we all take turns at describing what our religion is and answering questions from staff and faculty and students i mean this is my first public speaking 
ever. I wasn't even in college yet where I was required to lecture in front of people as part of the course. Mm-hmm. And there's two or three hundred people in the audience. And, you know, I pulled it off without sounding bad as far as I could tell. <laughs> and I got more questions than anybody else at the end because I was the last one and people didn't understand what it was, even though I was pretty thorough. They just had tons of questions and they weren't trying to make fun. They weren't bashing. They weren't, you know, just going by what the other religions were about. And I thought to myself, you know, this gives me credibility as a writer to be seen as someone who can explain their questions, not just in a book, but be willing to talk to them. Because, you know, I was kind of introverted, you know, don't like the crowds, don't like the herd. But mm-hmm. um, sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to be extroverted introverts uh, in order to get the message across and truly educate people. And I'm, I'm not saying educate everybody and let's all love each other and kumbaya and, you know, right, crap right. like that. It's a matter of don't hate people because you don't understand them. Hate them because you don't agree with them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I mean, you, you had your course that you took in front of uh, you know three hundred or so people. What was your fa- first? Um, what was your first paying lecture? Actually, the second time through that same student group, they wanted me to come back and give a lecture nice. on secret societies. They were impressed with how I did, and let's just say a month's worth of my bills disappeared in ten seconds. Oh, that's fantastic! And I was like, "Wow, I can actually get paid." You know, speaking for two hours, and they feed me at a nice restaurant too. I was like, "There's something here." Yeah, uh, I mean, it doesn't happen all the time. There's things like uh, webinars and podcasts and things like that that they're using technology in classrooms, so they don't pay you as much to speak if they're, you know, not having to shuffle you, you know, across the country. Right. But you're also not having to exert yourself very much doing it in your own, you know, office. So you know, it's kind of a trade-off there. What's next for for you? I mean, what, what's what's coming up in the book here? As far as uh, Dark Moon Press, if you go to the new and upcoming section of darkmoonpress.com. You'll see some new books that are coming out this fall, uh, anthologies and horror collections. And I'm very pleased to say that Dark Moon Press is teaming up with Old Nick Magazine to put out an enormous full-color photo book of goth girls, vampire vixens, and Satan sirens. Oh, yeah. It's basically our version of uh, the Suicide Girls, Gothic Beauty, and a little bit of a dark edge, but it's beautiful women and some amazing photographers. That's great. We're going to try to aim for Scarefest, uh, Scarefest in Kentucky, to debut that particular piece, which will be August, September. Uh, and Okay, so let's, let's sort of uh, wind this down here. Where can people go to learn a little bit more about your projects, your past works, your art? Um, probably the best place would be CorvusNocturnum.com. You can always check darkmoonpress.com for new and upcoming things, but my personal website uh, has my complete bio, history, art gallery of older work, and uh, I'll probably get around you know, next year uh, adding a lot more to the art gallery as I'm going to fill it back up and put out my art book, uh, not this fall, but the next year. Well, looking forward to it. Uh, Corvus, thank you so much for joining me. I truly appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Right. Uh, until we can talk again, hell Satan. Hell Satan to you too. Thank you much. And uh, said pan and music. That's going to do it for yet another episode of Nine Cents. I hope you enjoyed it. Let me take a second and 
I want to thank everyone out there for tuning in every week. With every episode I put out, I get vastly different reactions um, represented through downloading. And I truly appreciate everything, um, every single download I get. And all of the interaction with all of you listeners, to me, is invaluable. I'm just, you know, some guy who is having a lot of fun making a podcast based primarily around Satanism, but also featuring things that I consider satanic that do not define themselves as such. Uh, Like last week's interview, for example. I've been turned down by a number of people to talk to them because this is a satanic podcast and they don't want to be associated specifically with Satanism. I think it's short-sighted, but I can totally respect someone else's opinion. Um, But for those of you who do not mind shouting out who you are and listening to my show and enjoying the absurdity of it, uh, the occasional quip or... Uh, humorous opinion that I may toss out um, or just enjoy listening to the occasional interview that has a connection or meaning to you or your interests thank you I truly do appreciate it I have a lot of really amazing things lined up and I'm not entirely sure whether they'll all pan out and quite honestly because I'm a realist the majority of it won't But that rare plan I have that does come to fruition, I'm very happy that you're a part of. There are a number of ways that you can feed that back to me. You can give me ratings and reviews. Uh, You can respond to the shows. You can continue emailing me like you have been. uh, Interacting online. Sharing posts or liking them, and all of it helps get the word out about Nine Cents and, you know, convinces me that this is worthwhile. I mean, I'm a realist, like I said before, so I understand that you could be listening to anything. You could be listening to other satanic personalities, you could be listening to other just entertainment venues, music solely, so I I truly do appreciate you turning into me. And because of that, I try every week with the time that I am afforded, that I allot myself, to producing the show, which I do all myself, that it is received and responded to and interacted with. That I truly appreciate. So what you've been doing, thank you for it. I hope in the future you'll keep it up. I am trying to continually provide you with entertaining, informative, and uh, worthwhile content. So uh, I hope you don't think that I've really, you know, peaked yet. Because, quite honestly, I don't think I have. I'm, I'm kind of at that point where you feel like the peak could be coming. Like, you're the fly that's just, like, finally gotten to the other fly that is really you know, excited, I just threw my phone, that was that (laughs) thumping sound you heard, really excited that she's consented to have sex with you, so you don't have to take that uh, alcohol, ethanol, uh, soaked food that's been provided you by the scientists, and you're just like, yes, I get to have sex, this is amazing, 
what was I talking about again? I, I got sort of sidetracked on fly sex. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, thank you for listening. You can visit the SatanNet Facebook, Google Plus, or Twitter or MySpace page for nine cents and get updated on weekly topics. By the way, if you want to contact me, info at ninecentspodcast.com. Tell me to stop talking about fly sex. <laughs> Listen to the show at radiofreesane.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at ninecentspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching Nine Cents, and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. I've actually been contacted by a number of people looking for specific episodes in the past, and I've directed them to my old RSS feed or just sent them specific links. I'm thinking about reworking the website a little bit to provide sort of a, a grid of every episode I've ever performed broken up by year and then by month as I sort of just you know manage their file names. So hopefully that'll help you. It'll be a little more uh, uh, user-friendly. So if you do have any questions, please, uh, for the shows, they are all out there, even the very first one, which is very bad. And if you haven't heard it yet, maybe you don't want to, but it really reveals a lot about me. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week...